Last week we finished, uh, got a little off track, fancy that, but we, we were uh, going through this last um, verse in this chunk, in verse 12 of 1 Peter 1, and uh, started talking about various other things, particularly having to do with ministry, ministers, and the like. So we're going to pick up um, in the middle of 1 Peter uh, 1 verse 12, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. So we were talking about these these words. Uh, we, we got through they did minister, and we're now on uh, this word are now reported unto you. And... Or, um, Yeah, and so let's let's read through these few words and uh, see what they mean, and then um, we'll talk about what's happening in the verse here. So, have a volunteer to read. Go ahead, Audrey. I would say anegele, probably. Um, and how about this one? Sophia. Anagello, yep. And this means to announce or to rehearse or to report. So, um, it wasn't to themselves, but unto us they ministered the things which are now reported or announced or um, rehearsed to you. And we see it's in the heiress, so all of this has been in the heiress. Um, things that are being told to us, things that are being given to us, so it's passive, right? Which... Uh, passive is when the subject is receiving the action. Aorist is a um, undefined past action. So uh, we're receiving the action, something that had been said at, at some time in the past without thought toward when. By them that have preached the gospel. And, um, oh, and, that is, and these are all um, participles. This is a verb. That one was a verb. But... Uh, Many of these other ones, most of the other ones that we're, we're looking at here are participles. So let's have somebody read this nice long one here. It's actually two words, but I, I included what's called the article um, because of the nature of how this participle works. Audrey, you want to give it a shot? Very good. Ton uagalisamanon. And uh, this can happen. When you have a long word and it's in participial form, um, because here you have the word and then you have the tense indicator and then you have um, the ending for a, a, the participle and then you have the ending for the um, case. So they can get kind of long. But this, this is, I mean, at the same time, it's six words in the English, right? Them that have preached the gospel as far as how we have to get it into the English language. And how about the basic lexical form? Bell? Wangalizzo, yes. And does that, um, well, never mind. Um, we won't, won't hit that. But this, this is the word to preach the gospel or to give the good news, to, to declare good news. And so that's the word here. Um, and um, the ones who are preaching the gospel, and as we're looking in the context here, 
we see that it's talking about holy the prophets in verse 10 that searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace, searching what time the Spirit of Christ which was in them signified, and then unto whom it was revealed. So it's unto these men in the Old Testament. That's who we're speaking of here, the Old Testament men. And remember we spent all that time last week looking at the various verses that talked about the suffering of Christ and the glory that should follow, right? And so we had verses on His suffering, the verses on His glory, and... Um, and then our next participle here, sent down. Can somebody read that one for me. Sophia? Apostolenti, yes. Eh, Apostolenti, yeah, would probably be. Go ahead, Bell. Apostello, yep, yeah. and this is the word that we get apostle. From, sent ones, and that's what this word means, to set apart or to send out, apostello, and uh, again, it's aorist, it's middle passive, probably, you know, all of these are probably uh, most, very, very likely passives, and uh, so we have, they did minister, that word diakoneo, the things which are now reported to you. By them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. So the preachers of the gospel today are reporting unto you the same things that those other men in time past report on, uh, uh, said, and those men in time past learned as they inquired of the Lord, that the things which they were writing, which now are preached as a part of our gospel, were not written for them, explicitly, for the people of that day, but for us. It was written for us. It was written for our edification. And this is an important concept as we consider prophecy. Um, it's direct, directly referencing the grace that should come unto you through the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. So this grace, the prophecies, are for us. Now, as, as we consider this idea that the Old Testament, that there are portions of the Old Testament that were written for us, not necessarily for that generation, but just for the church, Isaiah 7.14 is, is a pretty good one. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, now in this case, it's interesting. When I was in seminary, uh, I heard, I was, I was listening to, to, in one of my classes, and there was a little bit of a debate over this, because um, there's a number of people that say that every prophecy in the Old Testament had a near fulfillment. And then there was also oftentimes a far fulfillment. And so when they read this verse... Isaiah 7.14, they said that there, there was a near fulfillment of this and a far fulfillment. In other words, that there was a virgin birth at that, in that day, and then there would be a virgin birth as well at the time of Christ. And it's interesting because, uh, let, me, let me go back there to Isaiah, because I believe it's in the next chapter in Isaiah that Isaiah speaks of, of his son um, being born. Mayor um, Shalal Ashbaz. Um, and his son, Isaiah, has a son named Mayor Shalal Ashbaz that's born. And many people say, well, he was a virgin birth. And, and that's what we're seeing there is we're seeing the short-term fulfillment. But there's really nothing in Scripture that demands that. 
that there always is. Now, we see it from time to time, don't we? We see there are, there are times where we have what's called dual fulfillment in prophecy, where there is a nearer and a farther fulfillment. We know that many of the prophecies of the Old Testament were given to validate uh, the ministry, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. And so we see that. We see near fulfillments. We think of Antiochus Epiphanes, right? And Antiochus Epiphanes, in, in Daniel's prophecies, there was this terrible man that would, would rise up and, and the abomination of desolation. And we see that happen uh, in, through Antiochus Epiphanes. But then we see, and, and if, if we didn't have anything in the New Testament, we would assume that Antiochus Epiphanes was the abomination of desolation. But then Jesus is talking in Matthew 24, and the disciples say, tell us about the end of the world. And so Jesus starts talking about all the, the things, you know, there will be wars and rumors of wars and, and, and such. And then he says, and when ye see the abomination of desolation standing in the temple, flee. Run for your life. And that is where we get the indication, the first indication in the New Testament, that the abomination of desolation spoken of in Daniel was not explicitly speaking to Antiochus Epiphanes, but to Antichrist. And Antiochus Epiphanes, we could say, would just be a near fulfillment of a much larger, much more legitimate fulfillment later on down the road. So we know those things happen, but it's not necessary. It doesn't have to be there. And I think Isaiah 7.14 is a good, a, a good indication of this, that, that, that this prophecy was not there for any generation but the generation that would have that virgin birth and then the following generations to prove the virgin birth. We're the only ones that need it. Before that, they could believe it, but, but it wasn't really for them. So I put here, imagine the troubled heart of the prophets as they wrote some of these words. Their confusion, their conflict. And then he makes it known to them that, don't worry, it's not, it's not for you. It's not, that, that's why you don't understand it. Because you won't understand it unless you've been there, right? It's like when you tell one of those jokes and you bust out laughing and no one else does. And you say, ah, you must have been there, right? There, there's certain things that are contextual. And there's many prophecies in the, in the Old Testament that were for our benefit. So let's, let's review the purpose of prophecy. And we've done this before, but this is, uh, whenever this, these things come up, it's just good to nail it down, the purpose of prophecy. So the, the prophet was first and foremost what we call a foreteller, right? He was a declarer of truth. It was his responsibility to tell the people what God said and to call the people to follow. And we see in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah, this is, this is very early in Isaiah's ministry, and, and it's the day that King Uzziah died, the scriptures tell us, and, and, or in, in the year, excuse me, that King Uzziah died. And Isaiah sees this prophecy where God effectively commissions him. And he sees the angels and, and the, the seraphim, right? And they're crying, holy, holy, holy. And then they take a coal from off the altar and they put it on his lips. And he says, this has touched my mouth. And the idea that his, his words are being purified, that his words are being commissioned to go. And this is his commission. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, here am I, send me. And he said, go and tell this people, hear ye indeed, but understand not. 
And see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the hearts of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and convert and be healed. Then said I, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and um, they be utterly desolate. It's actually a typo there. I tend to copy and paste that. I wonder what happened there. And they be utterly desolate, and the Lord have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. But yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return and shall be eaten as a tail tree and as an oak whose substance is in them when they cast their leaves. So the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. So what we see here in Isaiah's commission is that his commission was to go and to tell, right? And he says, how long? And, and God effectively says, till there's no one left to tell. Just keep calling out. You're not seeing, you're not hearing. See ye indeed. Hear ye indeed? Do you not see? Do you not hear? And keep telling them what is right. Keep telling them what is true until there's no one left. Sophia? Can you describe the word less? Un, um, uh, it, it's unless. Or, um, um, I get, maybe not. Yeah. It is an interesting phrase because literally what unless I think is a good uh, lest unless uh, and literally uh, as we read it what it kind of means is um, keep telling them this so that they don't or um, unless they do um, let me let me just double check the Webster's 1828 on that word and see if there's a and we see the same concept in, um, no, Isaiah 6. We see, see the same concept come up in um, the New Testament. Um, Webster says uh, that not or for fear that um, kind of ye shall not touch it lest ye die um, lest a worse thing come unto thee um, I think there's a New Testament Yeah, um, Jesus said in, in uh, Mark chapter 4, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but not unto them that are without. All these things are done in parables, that, ye, that seeing ye may see and not perceive, and hearing, uh, excuse me, seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. Um, and the idea is that for those who are unbelievers, these things are given in such a way that until they exercise faith, they will not understand. And so there's actually this, this idea here that, that God is, is, God's ministry through Isaiah was such that he says, you are going to just keep telling them 
with the understanding or the expectation that they will not believe. Um, that, that your voice to them will actually not be a salvation cry. It, you are crying for them to believe, but they have hardened their hearts. So what it's going to be actually is a condemnation to them as, as you, you give the truth. And this is not the only one of the prophets that God effectively told the prophet, I'm sending you to do a ministry that you, you will not find, reap benefit from as far as material fruit. You are going into a group of people that will refuse to hear you, and yet your job is not to convince them. Your job is to to tell them. And uh, so it's it's one of those unique passages of Scripture that we see on several occasions uh, come up where there's this connotation that I'm going to tell them these things lest lest they hear, um, with the expectation that, for fear of that they will not hear, for ex- with the expectation that they won't hear, um, with the expectation they won't receive. And that was what this means. That's the commission. And Jesus said that's why he spoke in parables. He spoke in parables so that those that believe would receive, and those that don't, won't. And uh, that's the way God has designed it to be. Other questions or thoughts? So that was Isaiah's commission. The actual commission, and this man tells us more of the coming of Christ and his prophecies than any other prophet, is that of preaching the word of God until there's no one left to preach. So we see that, that even though he will give many prophecies, his commission is just to tell the people, is to preach to the people, is to call for the people. However, um, I mentioned there that uh, he was raised up in a time of rebellion. The hearts of the people had grown extremely cold to the teachings of scriptures. And the scriptures teach us that a prophet would be contacted directly by God and asked to relay the message that God desired for the people to hear. We find this in Numbers 12, verse 6. And he said, Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in, in a dream. And so this was the commission of the prophet, to go and to tell, to foretell. Now due to the characteristics, the character of the people in these times, times of rebellion, right? That's when the prophets were raised up and during times of rebellion. The prophet was given extra tools with which to validate his message. And the tool that he used most prevalently to validate his message for the people of that day was signs and wonders. Um, And that was the purpose of the signs and wonders. It wasn't just for him to do miraculous things. He wasn't just given, you know, special powers for the sake of having special powers, but he was given this power so that he could validate the fact that he was the prophet of God. And we see this pinnacle in Israel's time with Elijah and Elisha, right? I mean, uh, if you want to talk about the prophets that, that magnified the power of God through them, Elisha and Elijah were them. I mean, they're calling fire down from heaven. They're, they're parting the, the waters of Jordan. They're making axe heads float. They're raising the dead to life. They, they are doing incredible miracles during those years of Elijah and Elisha, really at the pinnacle of the... The, the signs and wonders prophets. And then we see a transition to the writing prophets, right? And in the latter end of Israel, that's where you get Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and, and then all the minor prophets. So signs and wonders were not um, an, uh, an absolute sign 
It wasn't that anybody who had any power was from God. Demonic powers have the capacity to mimic many of God's miracles, right? We think of the magicians in the day of Moses. They were able to mimic the first two of the ten plagues before things got a little bit out of hand for them, including three if you count the serpent, uh, that they, they took their staffs and turned them into snakes, and then you had the plagues. Um, if, if, but, but they were able to mimic them. But as we consider in, in Exodus chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, and Aaron stretched out his hands over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt, and the magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs from the land of Egypt. So they were able to bring up more frogs. But then in verses 9 and 10, um, And Moses said unto Pharaoh, Glory over me, when shall I entreat for thee and for thy servants and for thy people to destroy the frogs from thee and from thy, and thy houses, that they may remain in the river only? And he said, Tomorrow, and he said, Be it according to thy word, that thou mayest know that there is none like unto the Lord our God. So why was Moses doing these signs and wonders? He was doing these signs and wonders so that Pharaoh could know that God is God. But of course, he's not convinced when his magicians can do the same thing, right? And the scriptures say, And they did so, for Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and smote the dust of the earth, and it became lice in man, and this is verses 17 to 18, and in beast, and all the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt, and the magicians did so with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there were lice upon man and upon beast. And so here was the limit of the magician's power, right? They could turn the, the water into blood. They could draw the frogs out of the Nile. And they could take their staves and turn them into serpents. Even though Moses' serpent ate theirs. But they could not reproduce any of the other miracles after that. And at that point, Pharaoh has to see that even if he still believes in his plurality of gods, that this god is much greater than his gods, right? And that's the point. That's why God did the signs and wonders. To validate that what was being said was true, to validate his power. I give you Deuteronomy 13 to consider. He, um, God says, and we've talked about this many times in our main service, if there arise unto you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and giveth thee a sign or a wonder and the sign or the wonder come to pass whereof he spake unto thee saying, let us go after other gods which thou hast not known and let us serve them. Thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams for the Lord your God proveth you to know whether ye love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So God says there's going to come times where prophets are going to come with signs and wonders and they're going to say that they're prophets of the Lord they're going to give their signs and wonders and, and after they give their sign and wonder they're going to say now here's what the Lord says don't worship the Lord worship some other God go after this other God and when you hear that God said don't follow after them they are liars they are deceivers and God is allowing them to, 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 go, to go there to do the sign and the wonder to test you, to see whether or not you love God with all your heart or whether you'll be easily pulled away by one of these false claims. He says, Ye shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice, and ye shall serve Him and cleave unto Him. And that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he hath spoken 
to turn you away from the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of bondage, to thrust thee out of the way which the Lord thy God commanded thee to walk in. So shalt thou put evil away from the midst of thee. So the primary, the primary function of the prophet was to tell the truth, to forth tell the word of God, and he used signs and wonders in his day to do that. Now the other ministry, obviously, the one that is quite um, most regularly associated with the prophet is his foretelling ministry. Now the foretelling ministry, that's telling the future, served several functions. These are the functions that we see in the Bible that this ministry served. First, to warn the people of the results of their current direction. This is to, to call them unto repentance, unto fear and reverence. So, in other words, this is the prophet coming up and saying, God, thus saith the Lord, like Jonah, in 40 days Nineveh is going to be destroyed. That was him telling the future on a near term in order to call unto action, to call unto repentance. Unto fear and reverence of God. This is Daniel. And this is more um, of an interpretation of a dream than it is a prophecy of the future, right? But literally what he did is he told the king what the king dreamed when the king had told no one else, right? He told him what he dreamed and then he told him what it meant. And what it meant was a prophecy. There was a prophecy within the dream. So God actually gave the prophecy to the king, but Daniel is the one that was able to foretell the prophecy or foretell the prophecy through his interpretation. And so in this case, God was doing that at least in part just to prove himself to Nebuchadnezzar. Just to prove that he is God. Just to prove that even though Nebuchadnezzar was that head of gold, and that there would be other kingdoms lesser than him, there was still going to be something that destroyed them all. And that would be the, the Messiah. That stone that grew into a mountain, unhewn stone. So, the first reason was to warn the people of the results of their current direction. The second was to validate the preaching of the prophet. So as the prophet preached, the, the, when his prophecy if he, if he gave a prophecy, when it came to pass, the people would know that he was telling the truth by the fact that it came to pass. Deuteronomy 18, 20, and 22 tells us that as we consider God's prescription for the prophets. He says, But the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods... Um, there it goes again. I, I don't know what, what the deal was with things getting cut off. Even that prophet shall die... And if thou say in thine heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord hath not spoken? When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken, but the prophet hath spoken it presumptuously, thou shalt not be afraid of him. So literally the prophet, if, if what the prophet says doesn't come to pass, then, it, then he's a false prophet. And immediately you stone him. So, all throughout the Old Testament we see these prophecies of things that would come to pass. And we see many um, true prophets that would, would come up and, and, and they would tell, um, tell a king or they would tell someone, this is what the Lord says, this is what's going to happen, do this and you'll prosper, do this, uh, if, if you continue doing this you'll fail. I think of, um, was it, ah uh, was it uh, Ahab who had the lying prophets in his chamber? 
And one of the prophets, I forget his name now, came and he pulled, he pulled the horns off the wall and said, these are the, with, with these horns you will thrust out the enemy. And, um, and the king of, of Judah is there as well. Uh, Jehoshaphat, I'm not sure. I'm probably getting all these names wrong. But the king of Judah is there as well. And the king of Judah looks at all these crazy prophets and he says, is there not a prophet of God here? And, and uh, Ahab says, uh, well, yeah, we have one, but I hate him. Because he always says things that I don't like, right? And so um, I, I should probably pull it up because I'm probably getting all these names wrong and you're just getting confused. So um, then, then they, uh, the prophet's name was Micaiah. Pretty sure. Nothing like dead air, right? Here we go. First Kings twenty-two. So uh, it was Jehoshaphat. Good for me. So um, Jehoshaphat had made a league with. Ahab. Yep. Okay. Uh, 2 Chronicles 18, 1 Kings 22. So the scriptures tell us now Jehoshaphat had riches and honor and abundance and joined affinity with Ahab. So they, they formed a league. And actually, what, what it looked like Ahab and, and Jehoshaphat were trying to do was Jehoshaphat was trying to unite the kingdom again. And yet Ahab, uh, the people were so lost in sin. And when the clean is with the dirty, right? When the clean is with the dirty, the dirty doesn't get cleaner, the clean gets dirtier. When you throw a clean rag into a dirty pile, you don't find a pile of clean rags at the end. You find a pile of dirty rags. Even the clean rag got dirty. And so Jehoshaphat makes this league with Ahab. After certain years, he went down to Ahab to Samaria, which is where their capital was. And Ahab killed sheep and oxen for him in abundance and for the people that he had with him and persuaded him to go up with him to Ramoth Gilead. So they're going to go fight. And Ahab, the king of Israel, said unto Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, Wilt thou go with me to Ramoth Gilead? And he answered, I am as thou art, my people is thy people, we will be with thee in war. And Jehoshaphat said unto the king of Israel, Inquire, I pray thee, at the word of the Lord today. So Jehoshaphat's a godly king. And he says, Here's what we need to do. We need to inquire of the Lord before we do this. I'll go with you to fight, but we need to ask the Lord what he wants. Therefore the king of Israel gathered together the prophets of, uh, together of prophets, 400 men. So he pulls, yeah, let's bring them in. So 400 prophets, right? These prophets come in and said unto them, Shall we go into Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall I forbear? And they said, Go up, for God will deliver it into the king's hand. And Jehoshaphat is looking at all, 400 of these prophets of, of Ahab, and, and he says, is there not here of the, uh, a prophet of the Lord besides that we might inquire of him? Just one prophet of God, of Jehovah? Not these prophets of Baal? And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. For he never prophesied good unto me, but always evil. The same as Micaiah, the son of Imla. And Jehoshaphat said, Oh, let not the king say so. So they call him, and, and Micaiah... Um, Gets in and, and Ahab says, so what, what would you, uh, yeah, you can't read any of that, but um, so Ahab says, or, um, 
Let me just let you follow along here. And the king of Israel called for one of his officers and said, Fetch quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. And the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, sat either of them on his throne, clothed in their robes. And they sat in a void place at the entering of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets prophesied before them. And Zedekiah, the son of uh, uh, Chanayana, there it is. Uh, had made him horns of iron. He took those horns of iron and said, Thus saith the Lord. He's invoking the name of Jehovah here. Thus saith the Lord, With thee shalt thou push Syria until they be consumed. And, uh, and all the prophets prophesied so, saying, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper, for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. They're yes men, right? These guys are totally just there to get a paycheck. They want the king to keep feeding them, so they tell the king what he wants to hear. And the messenger that went to call Micaiah spake unto him, saying, Behold, the words of the prophets declare good to the king with one assent. Let thy word, therefore, I pray thee, be like theirs, and speakest thou good. So they go to Micaiah, and they say, Micaiah, uh, Jehoshaphat asked for a prophet of the Lord, and Ahab dropped your name. But here's the thing. Four hundred men are saying, yes, go do this. It would be in your best interest to agree with them, Micaiah. Speak good. And Micaiah said, As the Lord liveth, even what my God saith, that will I speak. He says, I'll tell him what God tells me. That's great. I love that. Maybe that should be, we should probably paint that on one of the walls here or something. I think that would be a great theme for our church. And when he was come to the king, the king said unto him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall I forbear? And he said, Go ye up and prosper. And they shall be delivered into your hand. So he says, yeah, do it. Do it, king. Go up. Notice what the king says. The king said unto him, How many times shall I adjure thee that thou say nothing but the truth to me? In the name of the Lord. Literally the king, who has 400 men saying, go up. Micaiah comes and says, yes, go up. And the king says, tell me the truth. <laughs> right? He, doesn't, he even knows that he shouldn't be doing this. It's just, it's... it's you can't even make this stuff up. It's fantastically just silly. Then he said, I did see. And this is what Micaiah's true answer is. I did see all Israel scattered upon the mountains as sheep having no shepherd, or that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let them return thereof every man to his house in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell thee that he would not prophesy good unto me but evil? Right? And so Micaiah gives the, good, the right prophecy. And, and he speaks in the name of the Lord. But here we have 400 men saying one thing, Micaiah saying the other. One's right, one's wrong, and that's it. But the prophecy is to show who is of the Lord. And here's the thing. Micaiah wasn't walking around giving all sorts of prophecies. He was walking around saying, repent and turn to God. Do what God tells you to do. But when it came to a point where he could give a prophecy, now in this, Micaiah literally tells him, you're going to die in this one, Ahab. You're not coming back. And Ahab got angry and he said, throw this man in prison and feed him with the bread of affliction until I come back. And Micaiah says, if you come back, then the Lord has not spoken through me. And Ahab dies in that battle and he doesn't come back. At that point, Ahab is dead, just like Micaiah said. They lost the battle, just like Micaiah said. That should have been a big indication to everybody that was still alive that Micaiah should be listened to, right? And that's the point. Of, that's why God gave him prophecy. 
is to say, I speak for the Lord. And so now listen to what I have to say. And what I have to say is repent and turn to the Lord because you've done wrong. And so that's, that's the idea there. Um, Jeremiah, I give you some Jeremiah. So as a direct side effect of validating the words of the prophet, God's holiness and his mercy are vindicated when the prophecy comes to pass. And so these near-term prophecies, that was their point. Their point on the near term was to validate the ministry of the prophet and to glorify God. But um, then uh, we also see this idea of validating God's hand in future events. The reason why we know Jesus' birth is special and that he is who he claims to be is because he fulfills Messiah's promises, right? He was born of a virgin. He was born in Bethlehem. He was born of the house and lineage of David. So he, he, he is of the line of David, so he has a right to be king. He was born of a virgin, just like Isaiah said he would be. He was born in Bethlehem, just like Isaiah said he would be. And so we know that he's Messiah because he fulfills the prophecies of Scripture. If he didn't fulfill the prophecies, he wouldn't be Messiah. And so Jesus said in John 5.39, Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. He says, The Old Testament Scriptures testify of me. Search the Scriptures, you'll find it. And then, the finally, so as we consider these points, the final reason for the prophet's ministry of foretelling the future was to instruct future generations. And this is the point. The prophecies of Messiah were written not as much for those who would look forward to Messiah, though it would still have been profitable for them to search out and believe the scriptures, but for those who would look back upon Messiah and seek to validate whether or not he was truly Jesus. And this should give us an understanding about the events of future prophecy as well, right? No doubt we can profit from study and understanding of the future events that are to come. But it seems likely that much of it was designed to be understood by those who are going through it. So that they can know that what's happening is of the Lord. Most of the timeline of prophetic events is impossible to understand from the New Testament alone. The key to prophecy is the book of Daniel, right? Which was written for Israel for their understanding. The tribulation we know is for Israel's redemption. As far as we are concerned, we firmly believe the church will be gone for that. And if the church will be gone for it, then why is it in our Bibles? Right? If the church will be gone for the tribulation, then why is all of this stuff about the tribulation in our Bibles? Well, it gives us the, the, the whole plan. It, it fulfills the plan. But I have to believe that if if what happened with what, if, if the benefits that we have from the prophecies of Christ are so potent, how beneficial will the prophecies of the end times be to anyone that might have the word of God in the, in the tribulation? When they start seeing these things come to pass and they can say, look at that. That's everything that the Bible said. And especially for the Jew, right? The Jews who know their Old Testament And they know Daniel. And they know Ezekiel. And they're reading these things. And they know them. And then they start seeing everything come to pass. So, the prophecies that were written, these prophets were consoled with the reality that it wasn't for their generation alone that they wrote, but for us that they wrote. And then there's this amazing phrase... 
which things the angels desire to look into. And the, uh, I believe it's the only, no, we have two here. We have uh, a verb and then an infinitive. So here's our, our verb. Can anybody, Audrey? Yep. And then how about the um, lexical form, Sophia? Epithumeo. yep. Now this one you can parse. Epithumusi. Go ahead, Sophia. Present, active, indicative, third person plural. You got it, right? O, ace, a, amen, eta, usi. It's there. Epithumusi. And uh, it is a present, active, indicative. Third person plural. So very well done. And uh, in this case, the third person plural is speaking of them, the angels, right? The angels desire to look into. And here's to look into. It's an infinitive. Um, but I did make it red. Is this supposed to be red? No, it's not supposed to be red. I didn't think so. Oh, this one was because the red is supposed to indicate that I don't show you the parsing because it. It's one that you can actually parse out. Um, that's my indication. But this one, obviously, I didn't, didn't not make red. So can anyone read this one for me? Bell? Paracupsi. Very good. And? Audrey? Paracupto. And this is to, uh, by the way, that, that one, um, epithumusi, epithumeo means to set one's heart on to long for, to desire. And then uh, this to look into, to bend beside, to lean over. It's literally what this word means. The angels lean over. They desire to look into this. They, they want to dig into this one. What is it that, they, that the angels want to dig into? What, in our context. Yeah, yeah, I think we're losing the forest for the trees here. We've got to... We got to uh, back up a little bit here. I'm, I'm always afraid. We've dug so deep into the language this time around that I'm afraid we're losing the forest for the trees. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. What things? What's it talking about? What's that, Sophia? Yeah, uh, told us. And what are those things? It's in this context, though. What have we been talking about? What has First Peter so far been, been, been focusing on, more than anything? Sort of. Salvation, right? The salvation that is to come and the hope of that salvation. Angels desire to look into salvation, into the gospel. We've uh, talked before, I don't, know, I don't know in which context, but the, the fact that for, for those of us, the majority of us, really I guess with the exception in this room of Robin, um, everyone else was saved at a young age, right? And so... Robin has something... 
Your mom has something that I don't have in understanding of redemption. She's actually the only one in the room tonight that has the understanding that the understanding of redemption to where she lived a life outside of Christ for a number of years before coming to Christ and sees the difference uh, can can truly see the before and after picture in her own life. Now we can see the before and after picture in other people's lives, and we can hear the before and after. But but the people that get saved a little later in life have a capacity to understand understand redemption in a way that we who are saved at a young age don't fully have. Because you have been saved from so many of the wrong choices. You've been saved from, from such a terrible uh, you know, environment or, or, or terrible um, choices or, or terrible friends or whatever it is. You've been, you've been protected from that. And you, you're saved at a young age. So you have, you have been um, re- removed from many of those propensities. So much so that in a manner of speaking, you can't understand redemption to the same degree of those that have you can understand it mentally but you can't understand experientially understand redemption to the same degree i think of jesus during his ministry when he's at the pharisee's house simon and the prostitute comes up and anoints him and and she's anointing him and wiping his feet with her tears uh, and her hair and, and Simon says in his heart, if Jesus knew what kind of woman this was, he wouldn't be allowing this. And Simon, uh, Jesus then gives Simon a, a hypothetical. If, if one man owes his master a great sum of money and, and, and another man owes this master a small sum of money and the master frankly forgives both of them, which one will love the master more? Simon says, well, the one who was forgiven more, right? The one, that if, if, if you owed me, if Sophia owed me a million bucks, and Mason owed me three, all right? And I look at both of them and I say, you know what? Both of you are fine, you don't have to pay. Mason says, hey, cool, I can go buy some bubble gum, all right? But Sophia says, wow, I just got my life back. I just got my future back. I just got everything back. And while Mason might say, yeah, Pastor Wickler's pretty cool, I would expect that Sophia would say, Pastor Wickler's something special. Because she was forgiven much. So the expectation, just from a human perspective, would be that she would love much. The person that understands their forgiveness the best will appreciate their forgiveness the most. Now, I've been forgiven as much as your mom has, and you've been forgiven as much as your mom has, but experientially, can we fully understand that? Not necessarily, because we don't really have that before and after. The angels have never been, nor will they ever need to be redeemed. They were created in unconfirmed holiness, and they made their choice. They fell or they didn't. And, either, and if they fell, they fell, and there's no redemption for them. If they didn't fall, they're confirmed in holiness, and, and, and there's no need for redemption. They can't understand it. They can sing about it. They can, they can glorify the Lord for it. Right? When, when Jesus was, 
was born, they were crying, glory to God in the highest and on peace, or on earth peace and goodwill toward men. That, that they are singing about the, the peace and the goodwill that has been extended toward men through Jesus, through this Redeemer that had come. But for all that they can praise the Lord for it, they can't understand it because they aren't redeemed. I've heard it before that, you know, the, the idea is when, when we're standing before the throne, the church will, will unite together to sing Amazing Grace. And the angels won't really be able to relate. Okay, well, we better wrap that up. Um, we still do have a, enough time to pray, but uh, we won't if we keep this up. So, um, so we talked about that. The fact that angels um, can't understand grace. They can't understand our redemption, but they're curious they're curious about our redemption. And we'll pick up next week with chapter 1, verse 13, where we actually get into some, some applicable teaching, finally, where we're actually drawing some application, not just pulling down knowledge, which is a good thing. So we're there.